Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're, we're studying through the book of Revelation as, as the culmination of a journey that we started eight and a half years ago in going through the whole Bible. And we're coming down towards the end of it in Revelation, enjoying to see what God has to say because this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the capstone of describing who he is and what he does and what he means to us. And so it's of vital importance. We see much about Jesus from the Gospels and from the Epistles, but this was one of the last books of the Bible that was written in order to polish off the picture of who Jesus is. It's his revelation of himself. And so in chapters 2 and 3, we're in a section where Jesus told John to write these letters to seven churches that were there in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And each of these letters is addressing a specific need in each particular church. Um, seven churches probably chose seven of them to, to demonstrate that this is a universal message to all churches. Um, but in the literal sense, these were seven cities that existed in the seven postal codes in that, in that province of the Roman Empire. And so this was a circular that went out to all of them, but he gave some individual messages to each church. And as we find, they have amazing connection and adaptation to who we are and where we live. As we saw last week, talking about the church at Ephesus and the danger of losing sight of what you love most, of falling from that first love and choosing to love other things more than him. And here, beginning with verse 8, we, we now enter into the second letter, and this is the one to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a city just a little bit north of Ephesus as you were moving around the peninsula that is Asia Minor. And Smyrna was a very wealthy city, but also a very pagan city as well. They had, because they were wealthy, they could afford to build. And because they could afford to build, they built many monuments to many gods, many temples and pagan places of celebration and things like that. And so a lot of interesting things that exist there in the ruins that, that still exist to this day of Smyrna. There's still a city there today. And by the way, of all seven of these churches, the church at Smyrna is the one that lasted that's actually still in existence today, although being persecuted, they've been persecuted a lot. An interesting thing in the letter to Smyrna is that this is the church that when Jesus wrote to them, generally to these churches, Jesus told them, there's good stuff about you and there's bad stuff about you. But when it came to Smyrna, he didn't even hint any idea of anything bad that he had to say about them at all. Um, he was addressing them because of what they were dealing with in their lives, which he describes as tribulation. The Greek word for tribulation is a word that simply means pressure. When we think of the tribulation, we think of what John calls the great tribulation, which is a future period of intense judgment upon the earth, um, and that's the great pressure, but this is the same just word, meaning pressure. Anything that puts pressure on us um, is what he's addressing here. Now, how many people 
today, this week, are under some sort of pressure in your life? Raise your hand. Okay. A lot of you are. I saw a lot of hands, some people putting up two hands. Um, I suspect that the people who didn't raise their hands are either too cool to raise their hands in public, or you're so exhausted from the pressure you can't even get your hand up. But dealing with people under pressure is something that we should be able to connect to greatly and to go, wow, this has something to do with me. And so as we read this letter to the Smyrnans, let's consider maybe God has something for us in all of this. And we'll kind of go through it, and then we'll back up and and take another look at it. To the angel, or literally to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write. And as we talked about before, these were addressed to the messengers of the church, which we would call the senior pastor of the church. Because here's their letter. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. So Jesus is identifying himself with some terminology that was used to describe him, that he used to describe himself in, in chapter one, where he had said, he had said he's the first and the last. He also said he's the one who lives, was dead, and he's alive forevermore in verse 18. So the first and the last return refers to his eternity and the fact that he was dead and now he's alive lets us know this is Jesus who is speaking. And he says, I know your works. I know what you do. You're ergon. I know how you live your lives. And the word know means literally to see it. He goes, I I see that. And I see your tribulation. I, I, I see your pressure that you're under. And I'm aware of your poverty. Now, Smyrna was a very rich city, but these people were considered to be poor, probably because of persecution that caused them to lose their assets, that caused them to not be employable, um, that things were confiscated from them. So here they are living in in a rich place, but they are poor. But he says, but actually, you're rich. You're richer than you think. I know your poverty but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy or the speaking against, literally, of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There were a group of Jews in Smyrna, and we know this from uh, external church history as well, that were just adamantly against Christianity, hated the Christians. And they were putting them down, they were encouraging their destruction. And so... Jesus here is alluding to the fact that you don't become a Jew just by being born a Jew. Because if your heart is not after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you're forfeiting the right to the privileges that come with being called Jewish. And so he says, as far as I'm concerned, their synagogue is being run by Satan, They're doing the work of Satan. They are working against their Jewish Messiah. But he says, I see what they're saying about you. I know what they are doing. And then he goes on, don't fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, the devil wanted them in prison. The devil wants everyone in prison. He doesn't care whether it's a literal prison 
or whatever it is that keeps you from being free, whatever it is that restricts you and holds you back, the devil's behind it. He only wants to, to suffocate people. And so the devil wasn't the one who was going to put him in prison. People were, but he's going, that's like what the devil wants to do to you. And I, I see that too. And, um, and he said, and, and you're going to be tested. And you'll have pressure for 10 days. Commentators differ as to why it says this. Some people would say it was just 10 literal days. They would only be in jail for 10 days. Other people would say, well, the days in Revelation sometimes are years. So it's talking about 10 years. And Diocletian, who was the emperor in those days, would end up living and ruling for about another 10 years. So it's talking about Diocletian. Problem is there were a bunch of evil emperors after him. Then other people say it's referring to the 10 um, emperors from Diocletian and the next nine who were the worst of the, of the emperors before the empire basically fell apart. Um, hard to see how that would be a comfort. Oh, don't worry, it's only going to be 10 more of these rulers. And, but probably... 10 days is used here as an idiom that just report, refers to a, a relatively short period of time. This isn't going to last forever. This is just a little while. Think about when you go on vacation, how long 10 days is. Don't think about when you have to work for 10 straight days. But when, when you go on vacation, those 10 days just fly by. And he, so he's saying they use that expression to go, this isn't, this isn't forever. Um, you're going to be put in prison and you'll be tested there. You'll have pressure for 10 days. Be faithful until death. Be faithful all the way to your death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, shall not be hurt by the second death. Um, over in Revelation 20 and 21, it talks about the devil and his angels being thrown into a, the pit, into the lake of fire, and it refers to those who reject Jesus Christ as being tossed in there with them. So basically what he's saying is, if you win this, you don't go to hell, is what he's saying. Now you look at this and go, I don't see a ton of encouragement here, because I am under pressure and, and put yourself in their place. You're living in Smyrna. You're living in a rich neighborhood, but you're the poor person in the neighborhood. Kind of like you're living in a mobile home in Newport Beach. And you're just like, if I was living in Phoenix in a mobile home, it'd be like, yeah, there's a bunch of us. But, you know, you find yourself in a place where it's like, I'm the, I'm the most hard up person in a place where everyone's rich, and everywhere I go, I'm reminded of them. So that's who you are. Now, you're under all kinds of pressure. The persecution that was going on at this time under Diocletian was, was pretty awful. Um, lots of Christians being burned at the stake, fed to the lions and things like that. And in order to understand it, you have to understand why and how they did this. And here's how it worked. The Roman Empire, as it spread, you're talking about from Western Europe all the way across into into what some of it would be present-day Russia, the Middle East, and, of course, Greece and, and Turkey, and all of these places 
are a part of this empire. So you have one ruler who's in charge of all those people. These people are various races. They are various religions and economic structures, and they all have distinct histories. How in the world do you pull all of that together? Because it's really too big to manage. It's too big for one person to really rule over it. Well, they could have segmented it up in a greater way, and that would have been smart. That would have been wise. But what they did is they decided the emperor is going to be the symbol of the empire. And the best way to do that is we will call the emperor God. Now, they didn't believe that all of a sudden this disgusting man had become a supernatural being. They, they knew that they, weren't, they aren't stupid. But the idea was they were concerned that people who had other gods might follow their God if what he said contradicted what the empire was ordering. And so they needed to have everyone just say, the emperor is more important to me than any other allegiance that I will have. Remember when, those of you who are old enough to remember when John F. Kennedy ran for president. It was the first time somebody who was a, a devout Catholic was running for president. People were very concerned because they said, if he gets elected president, he swears to uphold the Constitution of the United States. He's loyal to our country. But this guy is a devout Catholic, and he is going to be loyal to the Vatican, to the Pope, to Rome. Now, what happens when he has a presidential decision to make, and the Pope says one thing, and our government and our Supreme Court and our legislative branch says another, what's he going to do? And people were really freaking out, and they're like, I don't know. In the same way that when a Mormon runs, people are like, yeah, but wait a minute. What if he makes everyone wear those underwear and do the weird Mormon <laughs> stuff? And it's like, so we kind of, we go, well, I don't know. You know, we kind of want secular people running things. Of course, as it turned out with Kennedy and and uh, William F. Buckley says this in his, in his uh, autobiography, that once, he said, eventually people found out what every Catholic has always known, that we don't let our beliefs get in the way of our life too much. <laughs> and so once stories started leaking out about Marilyn Monroe and things like that, then everybody relaxed. They're like, oh, quick, cool. I guess this guy's, I guess this guy's one of us. And became a hero until he, until he was killed. Um, so they wanted to do the same thing with the emperor. It's like, okay, this is what I swear allegiance to. So what they would do is they would go into all the cultures. They didn't understand all the various religions, but they set up a, a statue of Diocletian, the emperor, and then they had little sticks of incense. And once a year, every citizen of the Roman Empire, in order to maintain your privileges, you had to come and light a stick of incense and place it beneath the statue, and you would say, Caesar, the emperor, is God. Now, a lot of Christians did it and didn't have a problem with it because they were like, I'll cross my fingers and just say it, or, you know, I'm, he is God, but he is a God with a small g, or, you know, you can justify it any way you want, but ultimately, there were people who were so devoted to God, to Jesus Christ, that they said, no. 
I will not swear allegiance. I have my allegiance to God, and, and therefore I'm not going to compromise in this way. That presented problems. <laughs> Did we have a picture of uh, the emperor up there all this time? I don't know. But this presented problems. And so they began to discriminate against those people. They could confiscate their property. They could remove their citizenship rights because of their unwillingness to get with the program. And you see this today in governments all over the world, including ours to a degree. People are very threatened by those who won't bow down to whatever the official rap is on, on the government because we're afraid that if we become fragmented as what we saw in the days of the uh, American Civil War, you, you might go, okay, a few southern states want to secede. Texas thinks they're a nation of their own. Let's let them have it. What difference does it make? It's too hot down there. It's too dry. Just let the Republic of Texas go. But you can't do that because the whole nation splinters. We're only strong if we hold together. And so that was the basic, the same philosophy that caused the North to refuse to allow the South to secede is their same mentality when they're going, I don't care what religion you are, you better be a Roman citizen first. And if not, we don't want you here. So that's what's going on. So they're in this environment where some of them had suffered greatly just for having integrity. And they saw some of their friends, they were still, they had their jobs, they had their houses and everything, and they were going, just go down there and do it. It's just incense, it's no big deal. It, you know, but so here you've made a decision, and now you are under pressure, and the day may come when life just rolls over you. The day may come when, when it's your turn to go to the arena for somebody's entertainment value and to have to go and fight lions or to have to, to go and be burned at the stake just for someone's entertainment. And so that puts a lot of pressure on you. And you've lost what you have, and life is painful every day, and you don't know what the future holds. You're scared to death. Now you get this letter. And there are a couple of things in this letter that I think, how in the world does that help? And in fact, how in the world does this help us? Let's be honest. A lot of times we read the Bible and we just kind of go through it, and, and we go, okay, yeah, sounds good. But we don't put ourselves in the place to actually say, wait a minute, what's the reality here? Now, in a cursory reading of this thing, a couple things jump out at me that would kind of bother me if I was in, living in Smyrna under persecution. For one thing, you have God. He's the first and the last. And he's coming to you and going, I totally see what you're going through. I totally know it. Every time those people attack you, I hear it. Every time you lose something, I get it. I see your pain. And I would go, so you're the first and the last, huh? Omnipotent, you can do anything, right? Okay, I get that you're omniscient. You can see it, but so what? I don't care if you can see it or not. That's not helping me. It doesn't help me to know that you see. <laughs> I mean, you see everything. That even makes it more disturbing. In some ways, I would rather hear that you don't know, but you're a good God, than to hear that you know, and then I begin to wonder whether you really love me or not. 
whether you're really good or not. So that's kind of problematic. But also, look at the whole flow of the passage. It goes sort of like this. Okay, I'm God, and I know you, and I see your life is miserable, and you know, you're poor by everybody else's standards, but I think you're rich. Thanks a lot. And you know, so hang in there, because pretty soon, a lot of you are going to get thrown in jail. And a bunch of you are going to die. So it's cool, but when you die, you're going to go to heaven, and you get a crown. And I'm like, I'm going through all this misery so that I can go to jail and die and then wake up in heaven and I get to wear a funny hat? Is that, like, is that, oh, thanks a lot. I think that's the way that some people could look at it. And I'm not meaning to be disrespectful. I'm just saying, let's be honest. How many times do you think when you're going through something difficult, but you know what? I may get a hat in heaven because of this. I mean, is that really? If I go to a party and the first thing they do is go, okay, everybody's putting hats on. I'm like, I don't want to wear a hat. I mean, it's why I have to keep getting stuff burned off my head. I don't like hats. But what is this about? Well, let's just think of a few things as we look through this again. And we start again with who it is that's talking and how he identifies himself because this is really important. He says, I'm the first and the last. I am God. I am eternal. There's nothing that has ever been made that wasn't made by me, and there is no end beyond me. There's no such thing as when I began. There's no such thing as when I end. I'm God, okay? And you go, all right, so I guess you know things we don't know, right? Exactly. But not only that, I've been dead, and I conquered death, and I'm alive now. That's a pretty good credential. Someone who is God, knows everything, sees everything, can do everything, but he also became a man. He also became human, and at the most elemental human level that you could ever get to, he died in a horrible death. He experienced pressure, the pressure of all of our sins being piled on him. Now, he's not just saying, look, I've had more pressure than you, and so you ought to listen to me. Pressure is generally not comparative. Your pressure feels overwhelming because it's on you. And so, you know, a little child carrying a five-pound weight or a huge man carrying a 600-pound barbell, it feels the same. So he's not trying to say, I've outdone you. But what he's saying is, I know about pressure, and I know about defeating pressure. I know about passing and clearing and coming to a point whereby I am not going to die again, which is what he tells them at the end. You don't have to have the second death. You're not going to go to hell. I'm alive. So he establishes his credentials, basically, as he introduces himself. And so right away, now he's not done. He doesn't say, listen, I'm God, and I died for you, so shut up. Just suck it up and deal with it. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. But he reminds us of who he is, and then he says, I do see what's going on. 
in your life. I see your works. I see your tribulation. I see people who are talking against you. Now again, that doesn't finish the picture. Just knowing that he sees doesn't instantly make us feel like it's okay, but he's setting the context and he's just going, you don't have to tell me stuff that I don't know about. I totally see it. When Jesus was talking about not worrying, he said, don't worry, I care for you a lot. And he said, every little sparrow that falls, I see it. Now that's fine for us, but if you're a sparrow, you're like, it'd be nice if you'd do something about it. I mean, you're, you're going, oh, I see, I see, I hear your pain, like Clinton. Oh, fine, I'm glad that you hear my pain, but, but is, there, is, there, is there something you can do about it? But again, he's just saying, resolve this issue. Don't think that this is out of control. Of course, I could stop the pressure. So now the question becomes, if he sees it, and he is the first and last, and he's conquered death, why doesn't he stop the pain? And every one of us, at some times in our lives, struggle with the idea that there's a God who supremely loves me, who can do anything, so why doesn't he do something about this week? Why doesn't he do something about this pressure? I'm collapsing under the pressure. Why is he not fixing this? But it's clearly not because of his omniscience lacks. He says, I see all of that. But look at verse 10, because this really gets to the heart of the matter, I think. Do not fear, or literally stop fearing, any of those things which you are about to suffer. Yeah, the devil's going to do this and send you into prison, but it's so that you may be tested. It's going to happen for a while. Be faithful for the rest of your life. And when you are, a crown of life is going to be the result. So Jesus tells them, I see what you're going through. This isn't what it appears to be. This is actually a test. This is a way in which you are being exposed for who you are. Now, a teacher gives a test because a teacher needs to know how the students are doing. They need to know, and, and really when students take a test, more than anything, it's a test on the teacher's capacity to teach. Because if you're teaching and no one's learning, guess what? You're not teaching. But there's a higher purpose to testing than letting the teacher see how they are doing, and that is it lets you see how you are doing. A test reveals to you, I didn't know that. And it reinforces, I did know that. I love the feeling when you look at a test and you go, I studied the right stuff. This is all, I can't wait to do this test. On the other hand, you've had the experience, I'm sure, where you looked at the test and you go, I spent hours and hours studying all the wrong stuff. This just looks horrible. Some questions you go, Answer C jumps off the page at you. That's it. I know it. I'm certain of it. I know I at least got one right. Others, you go, A and C are wrong. So it has to be B or D, and they both look good. And I'm looking back at the other questions, and there are several B answers, but there are no D answers. So they got to have some Ds. So I think that's probably what it is. And you feel like, I think I'll do okay. But tests are a mirror. 
Tests reveal who you are. And to not be tested is to live life aimlessly, to live life as a victim, to live life as someone who has no perspective. And notice the realm of the test has to do with fear. Fear is the most damaging and destructive, life-sucking thing that can exist in your life. And we all have it. Fear blinds us to realities. Fear robs us of our dreams. Fear is something that causes us to be dead while we're still living. I just won't do this because I'm afraid of that. I won't do this because I'm afraid of that. And these people in Smyrna were living in fear And he says, this pressure is going to squeeze that out of you because you will never be fully alive. You can be as loyal and disciplined as you want, but you'll never be fully alive until you stop living your life based on what you're afraid of. Terrorists know this. It's what makes terrorism terrorism. They can do a few... Terrorists' goal is not how many of us can blow ourselves up. That's not it. They don't even care how many people they kill when they do an act. They they need the publicity. They want it to be big news what they did. Why? Because, yeah, you can take down two buildings in New York City and you can kill a few thousand, couple thousand people, but then millions of people are scared to death. And when little old ladies get on an airplane now, they're getting molested by by you know agents of the government and we all have to take our shoes off and and none of us really look like anybody would seriously suspect us as a terrorist but the the terrorists have accomplished what they wanted to do not only that imagine if you are of arabic descent what your life is like because people are afraid of terrorists they're afraid of you and, and you don't even have to be of Arabic descent. If you just have darker skin, olive skin, it's like, I don't know, are you going to blow the plane up? And that whole, that whole fear, that terror just destroys us. It separates neighbors. It causes us to treat each other in a way that we never would, and we live by fear. And as long as we are making our life decisions based on what we're afraid of, we might as well be dead. It's better for someone who hates you to see you live in fear than for them to see you die. And the devil is behind fear. He is the one that he is the ultimate terrorist. He made a stupid decision and he knows it's wrong and he knows where he's going to end up, but he wants to make as many people miserable as he can. And if he can make people reject Jesus Christ because they're afraid, he'll do that. If he can make Christians be miserable and live like cowards, he'll do that. But he wants us to live in fear and the agenda that Jesus has for us, as he says over and over again, we saw him say it to John in Revelation chapter one when he touched him and he said, stop fearing, don't be afraid. And it doesn't mean you don't, you don't fear something, it means you don't act on that fear. That's not that which determines the decisions that you make. And Often, difficult times can make cowards of all of us. But as soon as you give in to fear, then you have just ruined your life. And many of us have missed so many opportunities in life because we're afraid. I'm afraid of what somebody will think of me. I'm afraid of what they'll say. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. And people who are 
horrible leaders thrive in an atmosphere of fear. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is make people afraid. When they do that, they, you know, they're in business. What Jesus is saying is, what you are going through is designed to put pressure on you because I want you to be tested. I want you to look yourself in the mirror and know, why am I doing what I'm doing? What is the motivating factor in my life? What do I really believe in? For them, it was that integrity decision. Do I burn the incense to the emperor or do I refuse to and put myself in danger? For us, it's a million other things. But you look at your life and see where you are under pressure and you will find at the source of that the hand of God trying to reveal to you that your fear is holding you back from something that God wants to do. The only way to deal with fear that I know of is to face it. You can't be cured of fearing something without facing it, without confronting it. If you're afraid to fly, you can go get counseling, you can get help, and that may contribute, but ultimately somebody who's helping you is going to have to tell you, you're going to have to go get on an airplane even though you're afraid. And when you can do that repeatedly, you find, maybe I'm still a little afraid, but I don't let that tell me I can't go to Hawaii. I don't let that tell me I can't see the world. How, how foolish to be stuck living where we are. Now, some people don't have options. I was with a guy last week who's a, who's a pastor over in Cuba. And this is, he's a middle-aged guy, and this is the first time he's ever been off Cuba. He's been on the island his entire life. And I said, so they won't let you fly? He goes, no, you know, they never have. I, this is amazing that they gave me permission to come over here. And I said, what are you excited about? I took him to hometown buffet, and he was like, whoa, this is... <laughs> you've never seen so much food before. But he said, well, um, Pastor Jaime, a friend of mine, is gonna, I think he's going to take me deep sea fishing. And I go, wow, so that's exciting to you. Have you ever been deep sea fishing before? He goes... Cuba. They don't let you get in boat and leave the dock. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot. I forgot what it's like to live under that kind of totalitarian control. And it all is enforced by the fear. If everyone would rebel at the same time, they could have a better life for themselves. But they don't do it because they're afraid it won't work. Now, what these people in Smyrna needed to understand is God is working in your life. It may be Satan who is bringing trouble to you, but God is standing there watching, and as Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we need to understand this. Whatever is pressuring us is testing us. And passing the test looks like this. I'm afraid but I am not going to let my fear stop me from living. I'm not going to let my fear be the directing force of my life because if Satan knows you're afraid, he's like a, a bulldog grabbing onto a rag. He goes with it because that's all he has. If we stop giving into our fear, he loses big time. So what are you afraid of? 
afraid to tell somebody else about Jesus? What do you think is going to happen? What are you really fearing? It's an irrational fear. Um, maybe you're afraid to change jobs. You hate your job. It's a horrible job, but it's a job. So you're like, I don't even go look for a job because I'm afraid if my current employer finds out I put applications in somewhere, he's going to fire me. So great, you stay where you are. Don't, don't complain about where you are. You're making a choice to let fear be your Lord. You're letting your choice, you're, you're making your choice, and it may be a rational fear, but it still is a fear that robs you. And so Jesus would be saying to all of us, there's a reason for the pressure. There's a reason why I don't step in. There's a reason why I don't bring my omnipotence to every situation that you are in. You are being tested, and this is ultimately about your conquering fear. And, and you know, ultimately, when you do something that you're afraid of, it's, it's refreshing. I mean, I remember the first time when I was studied martial arts as a little kid, I thought the one thing I don't really want to do is get in a fight. I don't want to have to, you know, be hit. I knew, even as a little kid, getting hit isn't a good thing. But, you know, it's funny thing about getting hit. After you've been hit a few times, and maybe it's because of the damage that comes from being hit, but <laughs> you're not afraid of being hit anymore. And in a fight, the guy that wins is going to be the guy that's not afraid to get hit. And in life, it's the same thing. The person who is afraid of taking risks, like the little kid whose parents baby him, and they never go on a roller coaster, and they never find out what that thing is of, wow, I can flip upside down, and I get off, and I'm still okay. They're going to live their whole life like all of this feels like a roller coaster. Inside, I'm really wanting to have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. I don't know, though. They could reject me. They could figure out who I am and divorce me. They could laugh at me and make fun of me. They could do... So I think I'll just take my book and sit in the corner and I'll read my book. And I'll call that life. I'll watch TV and I'll watch other people's relationships. Or I'll go on the internet and form relationships whereby nobody knows me because I'm using a different name and I'm claiming to be something I'm not. And then I sort of get the thrill of relate. No, that's not. That's nothing like it. Simulations aren't reality. And, and for any of us, if we allow fear to be driving our lives, then it'll turn out. Now, in this case, in Smyrna, the pastor of this church at the time, who, who was a, a Polycarp, was continued to be the messenger to this church and the pastor of this church for over 50 years after this. So obviously, not compromising when he, up until the time he was martyred, and yet he, it wasn't as bad as people thought. Now, no doubt there were people from Smyrna who were taken and killed. There were others who did time in jail. But the, the enemy always makes us think that what we're afraid of is way worse than it is. You actually face it. It's not nearly as threatening as what you think it would be. And that's one of the great lessons of life. And he is saying, you are being tested. And the testing isn't so God can see who you are. He knows who you are. And the fact that he knows everything about you should cause you to recognize 
If he sees everything and he loves me completely, then there must be a plan going on and I am under pressure for a reason and the reason I am under pressure is that he wants to deliver me from my fear. And, and that's what he communicates to them. And then as he says, you'll be tested, you're going to have pressure for a while, but be faithful until death. Now that's not necessarily referring just to their death. What he's saying is, you decide that even if you kill me, I'm going to do the right thing. I am going to live in integrity for my entire life. Not just when the time comes to die or not. My life is a life of integrity. My commitment is something that even death won't take me from that which I have put my heart into, that which I have entrusted myself to. And if I do that, he says, I'll give you a crown of life. The word there for crown doesn't refer to the crown like a king or a princess or queen would wear. Um, It's a word that was a trophy. At the end of the Olympic Games, the people who won the events would go up to the judgment seat, the bema seat, and they would place a little wreath on their head. The the wreath didn't mean anything. It was going to die quickly. But the commendation was to say, you are the best at what you are doing. So what is a crown of life? I believe it's life itself. I believe that when your life is over, I don't, going to heaven, if they make me wear a hat, I will, but I don't think that's really what it's about. I think it's that I come into eternal life and I go, I lived. I actually lived. I didn't let fear suck the life out of me. I, I, I accepted the pressure gracefully. I, I stayed tight with Jesus. I did what he showed me to do. I made my decisions not based on what I was afraid of, but based on who I knew was watching, based on who I knew gave his life for me. And so I did it. And at the end of my life, and we're all going to get there someday, you can't avoid it. You can try to prevent death all you want, but it's coming unless the Lord raptures us, which would be great too. Either way, we're going to find ourselves in heaven answering to Jesus about what we did with our life. And it's not so that he can tell us, you blew it. He he doesn't want to condemn us at all. See, but it's to give us a perspective that we will carry for all of eternity. Do you realize, I mean, you cover sins in your lives, you hide things, you try really hard to fix things. I mean, that's kind of what we all do. The truth is, according to what the scripture says, you are perfect, you are righteous now. It says that, that all of our sins were put on Jesus and all of his righteousness was imputed to us. So it turns out the only deception is not our sin. That's been taken care of. We don't have to cover up our sin. It's awful. It does damage. Jesus paid for it, though, and has given us righteousness. But what happens is if we live like losers afraid of our shadow, constantly avoiding anything that might bring pressure, we, we waste our lives. We wasted that which could have been. And I think when we get to heaven, we'll all be sort of bummed when we look back and think of what life could have been. 
But that's okay. We're going to have life for eternity. It's not something to really mull over. But the tests now are tests that are designed to help us conquer fear so that when we come to the end of our life, it will, heaven will just be the crowning achievement. It will just be, this feels right. Because here we are, here together, victorious because of Jesus Christ. And he says, I have that for you. And when that happens, you will discover that your crown was not just in heaven. You'll discover that your crown was the life that you were able to live in fellowship with me, following me and loving me. And so then, yeah, you win. And we're all going to escape hell if we've put faith in Jesus Christ. But what are we doing right now? What are we doing with this amazing gift of life that we have? I sometimes wonder why people even care if they have eternal life or not. When I look at what we do with our lives in the present, it's so, it's so crazy that we're like, oh, I hate life, but I sure want it to keep going. And our concept of heaven is that finally I will get whatever I want. I don't, I don't really think I want to get what I want. I want what he wants. And I can get that now as I face fear, understanding that the pressure is something he has put on me to test me and to help me to become more alive. Pressure should bring the life to blossom in us. That's what his plan is. That's what he wants to do. And that was the heart of Jesus for these dear Christians in Smyrna. And that's what he wants for us as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you for the pressure, the tribulation that you put us through. I know that when you look at us, you wouldn't possibly allow us to suffer as we do if you didn't have a really good reason. And we see that what you are trying to do when you squeeze us is to squeeze the life into us. Help us to learn this. Help us to live in this and to allow you to change us by your grace and by your love. Help us not to beat ourselves up, but help us to look in the mirror as we are tested and learn, oh, there's something that I can let Jesus take care of. There's something that I can commit to him. So Lord, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.